Chapter Seventeen of *The Mountebank* by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter Seventeen. The real discussion between them of the change that the death of Royal Marasco might bring about in their relations did not take place till the next day. Each felt it as a sudden shock, which, as in two chemicals hitherto mingling in placid fluidity, might cause crystallization. Up to this point, the errant husband, vanishing years before across the seas, in company with the little modiste of the Place de la Madeleine, had been but a shadow, less a human being than a legal technicality which stood in way of their marriage. Occasionally during the war each had contemplated the possibility of the husband being killed, a mere fleeting speculation. As Elodie had received no official news of his death, which is astonishing in view of the French Republic's accuracy in tracing the état civil of even her obscurest citizens, she presumed that he was still alive somewhere in the shadowland in which exist monks and papuans and swell mobsmen and other members of the human race with whom she had no concern. And Andrew had been far too busy to give the fellow whose name he had all but forgotten more than a passing thought. But now there he was, dead, officially reported, with picture and description, a distinction and place and date all complete. The shadow had melted into the definite eternity of shadows. Andrew rose early, dressed, and, according to his athletic custom, took his swinging hour's walk through the streets still fresh with the lingering coolness of the night, and then, after breakfast, entered Elodie's room. But she was still fast asleep. She seldom rose till near midday. It was only after lunch, a preoccupied meal, that they found the opportunity for discussion in the little stuffy courtyard of the hotel, set round with dusty tubs of aloes and screened with a trellis of discontented vine. They sat on a rustic bench by a door, and then coffee was served on a blistered iron table, once painted yellow. There were many flies which disturbed the slumbers of an old mongrel Newfoundland sprawling on the cobbles. And there he put to her the proposition which he had formulated during the night. "'My dear,' said he, "'I have something very important to say to you. "'You will listen, eh? "'You won't interrupt?' Coffee cup in hand, she glanced at him swiftly before she sipped. "'As you will?' "'Yesterday,' said he, "'I met a comrade of the war, "'a colonel of Australian artillery. "'I lunched with him, as you know.' "'Bien,' said Elodie. "'I had a long talk with him. "'He made certain propositions.' He repeated his conversation with Arbuthnot, described at second hand the Solomon Islands, the beauties of reef and palm, the delights of a new, free life, and laid before her the guarantee of a competence and the possibilities of a fortune. As he talked, Elodie's dark face grew sullen, and her eyes hardened. When he paused, she said, "'You are master of your affairs. If you wish to go, you are free. I have no right to say anything.' "'You don't allow me to finish,' said he, smiling patiently. "'I would not go there without you.' "'Moi?' She shifted round on her seat with sudden excitability, and pointed her finger at her bosom. "'I go to the other end of the world, and live among savages and Australians who don't talk French, and I, who know no word of English or any other savage tongue? No, my friend, ask anything else of me. I give it freely, as I have given it all these years. But not that.' "'You would go with me as my wife, Elodie. "'We will get married.' "'Poof!' said Elodie contemptuously. 
Without any knowledge of the terminal values so precious to women, Andrew felt a vague apprehension lest he had begun at the wrong end. Surely, said he by way of reparation, the death of your husband makes a great difference. Now there is nothing to prevent our marriage. There is everything to prevent it, she replied. You no longer love me. The same affection exists, said he, that has always been between us. Then we go on leading the life that we always have led. I don't think it's very satisfactory, said Andrew. I do. If it pleases us to remain together, we remain. If we want to say good-bye, we are free to do so. He noticed that she wrung her hands nervously together. You don't wish to say good-bye, Elodie? he asked gently. Oh, no. It is only not to put ourselves into the impossibility of saying it. While you live, my dear, he replied, I could never say it to you. If you went away to the Antipodes, you would have to say good-bye, my dear André, for I could not accompany you, never in life. I have heard of these countries. They may be good for men, but for women, no. Unless one is archimillionaire, one has no servants. The woman has to keep the house, and wash the floor, and cook the meals. And that, you know well, I can't do. It may be selfish and a little unworthy, but, mon Dieu, I have always been frank, that's how I am and except on tour abroad where we have lived in hotels where everybody spoke French, I have never lived out of France. That is what I was always saying to myself when you were seeking an occupation. What will happen to me if he does get a foreign appointment? I was afraid, or terribly afraid, but I said nothing to you. I loved you too much. But now it is necessary for me to tell you what I have in my heart. You are free to go to what wild island you like.' That is why it would be absurd for us to marry. But it would be all finished between us. That couldn't be, said Andrew. What would become of you? She averted her head and said abruptly, Don't think of it. But I must think of it. During the war. During the war it was different. A la guerre comme à la guerre. We knew it could not last for ever. You loved me. It was natural for me to accept the support of mon homme, like all other women. "'But now, if you leave me, no. "'Nini, nini, nini, c'est fini.' "'So all Andrew's beautiful dreams faded into mist. "'He rose and crossed the little cobble courtyard "'and looked out for a while into the shabby by-street "'in which the hotel was situated. "'That Elodie should accompany him was the only feasible way, "'from the pecuniary point of view, "'of carrying out the vague scheme.' It would be a life at first of some roughness and privation. Arbuthnot had laid the financial side quite clearly before him. He could not expect to land on the Solomon Islands without capital, and even a borrowed capital, and expect an income of a thousand pounds a year to drop into his mouth. If Elodie, although refusing to accompany him, would accept his allowance, that allowance would, of arithmetical necessity, be far, far less than she had enjoyed during the war. Besides, Although he was bound tentatively to suggest it, he knew the odd pride, the rod of steel through her nature, which he had come up against to his own great advantage time after time during their bartership, and he would have been the most astonished man in the world had she answered otherwise. Yes, the dream of coconuts and pearls had melted. She was right. Even had she consented, she would have been a ghastly failure in pioneer colonial life. Their existence would have been mildewed and moth-eaten with misery. She knew herself and her limitations. 
to go and leave her to starve or earn a precarious livelihood with her birds on this post-war musical stage avid for novelty of sensation were an act as dastardly as that of the late royal Marasco, who planted her there on the platform of the Gare Saint-Alazaire while he was on his ways overseas with the modiste of the Place de la Madeleine. He turned to find her dabbing her eyes with a couple of square inches of chiffon, which, in spite of his exiguity, had smeared the powder on her face. He sat down beside her with his patient smile, and took her hand and patted it. "'Come, come, my little Elodie, I am not going to leave you. It was only an idea. If it had attracted you, well and good. But as it doesn't, let us say no more about it.' "'I, I don't want to hinder you in your life, André,' she said brokenly. Some don't beaucoup could have been. But you see, don't you, that I couldn't do it. He soothed her as best as he could. Les petits patous would invent new business, of a comicality that would once more make their fortunes. That being so, why should they not be married? She looked at him searchingly. You desire it as much as that? I desire earnestly, said he, to do what is right. "'Are you sure that it doesn't come from the respectability of an English general?' "'I don't know how it comes,' he replied, hiding the sting of the shrewd thrust with a laugh. "'But it's there all the same.' "'Well, I'll think of it,' said Elodie. "'But give me time. Ne m'embête pas.' He promised not to worry her. "'But tell me,' he said, after a few moments' perplexity, "'why you were so agitated all yesterday after you had seen that photograph?' Elodie let her hand fall on her lap, and regarded him with pitying astonishment. "'Mon Dieu! What do you expect a woman to be when she learns that her husband, whom she thinks alive, has been killed two years ago?' Andrew gave it up. On the morning of the sailing of the Osway from Marseille, he called on Arbuthnot at the Hôtel de Noël, and told him of his decision. "'I'm sorry,' said Arbuthnot, "'as sorry as I can be. But in case you care to change your mind, here's my card.' "'And here's mine,' said Andrew, and he handed him his card, thus inscribed. "'Monsieur Patou, Combination des Petits Patou, Trois Rue Falda, Faubourg Saint-Denis, Paris.' Arbuthnot looked from the card to Andrew, and from Andrew to the card, in some perplexity. "'Why,' said he, "'I've seen your bills about the town. You're playing here. Why the deuce didn't you let me know?' "'I gave a better performance at Borden Wood,' said Andrew. Now hereabouts, I ought to say, the famous manuscript ends. Indeed, this late Marseille part of it was very hurried and sketchy. The main object which he had in view, or rather which in the first inception of the idea I suggested he should have in view, namely, to interest, perhaps encourage, at any rate to stimulate the thoughts of many of my old comrades who have been placed in the same predicament as myself, as he says in the letter which accompanied the manuscript, he had abandoned as hopeless. He had merely jotted things down helter-skelter, diary-fashion. I have had to supplement these notes from his letters and from the confidential talks which we had, not very long after he had left Marseille. From these letters and these talks also, it appears that the tour booked by Moignon did not prove the disastrous failure prognosticated by the first two nights of Marseille. Nowhere did he meet a pre-war enthusiasm, but on the other hand, Nowhere did he encounter the hostility of the Marseille audience. At Lyon, owing to certain broad effects, 
which he knew of old to be acceptable to that unique, hard-headed, full-bellied, tradition-bound bourgeoisie, he had an encouraging success. He felt the old power return to him, the power of playing on the audience as on a musical instrument. But at Saint-Étienne, a town of operatives, the performance went disappointingly flat. Before a dull or discontented audience, he stood helpless. No, the old magnetic power had gone. However, he had recovered the faculty of making his livelihood somehow or other as petit patou, which he began desperately to feel was all that mattered. His soul revolted, but his will prevailed. Elodie accompanied him in serene content, more flaccid and slatternly than ever in her hotel room, keenly efficient on the stage. Now it happened that, a while later, during a visit to some friends in Shropshire, who have nothing to do with this story, I broke down in health. I have told you before that liaison work during the war had put out of action that elderly croc that is Antony Hilton. Doctors drew undertaker's faces between the tubes of their stethoscopes as they jabbed about my heart and raised their eyebrows over my blood pressure. Just at this time I had a letter from Lackaday. Incidentally, he mentioned that he was appearing in August at Clermont-Ferrand, and that Horatio Bacchus, who in his new prosperity could afford to choose times and seasons, had arranged to accept a synchronous engagement at the Casino of Royat. So, while my medical advisers were wringing their hands over the practical inaccessibility and the lack of amenity of Noheim, whither they had dispatched me unwilling in dreary summers before the war, and while they were suggesting even more depressing health resorts in the British Isles, it occurred to me to ask them whether Royal les bains did not contain broken-down heart-repairing works of the first order. They brightened up. "'The place of all places,' said they. "'Write me a chit to a doctor there,' said I, "'and I am off at once.' I did not care much about my heart. It has always been playing me tricks from the day I fell in love with my elder sister's French governess. But I did care about seeing my friend Lackaday in his reincarnation as Petit Patou, and I was most curious to make the acquaintance of Elodie and Horatio Bacchus. Soon afterwards, therefore, behold me on my way to Clermont-Ferrand, of which manufacturing town Royat is a suburb. End of chapter 17